0: Get your tickets at Austintheater.org.
1: Support for Explained Live comes from Meals on Wheels Central Texas and World Interiors. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Hello and welcome to This Song, the podcast that asks artists about the songs that changed them. Hey man, I'm just gonna come out and say it. We asked artists about songs that changed their lives. It sounds grandiose, but it's a for real thing because there are these songs and they come along every so often and they're like portals into other musical worlds. They, like maybe they don't take you to another dimension, but they add dimension to your life, often in ways you had no idea were even possible. And these are the songs we want to hear about. In this episode of This Song, I spoke to Nels Klein and Julian Lodge, and they both talked about having these life-changing, maybe life-affirming musical experiences for sure. What differs in their stories is scale. Nels has this huge, mind-expanding experience, while Julian chose a much more intimate encounter. But they're equally powerful. First off, Nels Klein. You may know him from his work with Wilco. He's been their guitarist since 2004. Or from his own work with the Nels Klein Singers, or Nels Klein Trio, or his work with Mike What? He's done a lot. He and Julian Lodge, who you'll hear from later in the show, have a guitar duo. And they came to Austin to play the Cactus Cafe. Before the show, they came into Studio 1A to do a session. And afterwards, Nels sat down with me and told me about a song that opened him up to an entire world of music he really wasn't even aware of. So here he is, Nels Klein.
2: I've been pretty well documented talking about my first musical epiphany, which was hearing manic depression by the Jimi Hendrix experience when I was 12 years old. that was the moment, uh, I was already listening to the birds and the stones and these kinds of bands, but that was the moment at which I decided I had to play music for the rest of my life. That song still blows my mind, it still makes me feel like I, I'm have my finger plugged into it, a wall socket or something. It's like being electric, like the whole world becomes electric.
3: Like you actually get turned on.
2: Yeah, it, it just becomes, it's so magical, it's so energetic, and it's so, so incredibly original also. And, so, uh, and I think it sounds just as good now as it did then to my 12-year-old ears. But I, as I say, I've talked about that a lot. So I think what I'll do then is mention, I guess, the next big... Aha! experience that was actually a major shift of uh, perspective or emphasis or uh, perception, which was uh, hearing, uh, it was it turned out to be an edited version of the John Coltrane piece Africa. My twin brother Alex and I did everything together, he's a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, uh, I think, sort of in between junior high school and high school maybe right at the end of graduating from junior high school, when we, for some reason, I don't understand to this day, ended up in the apartment of our friend Bill Watts. But he wasn't there. I don't understand why Alex and I were in his apartment and nobody else was there but us. But we had uh, a copy of John Coltrane, His Greatest Years, Volume 1. And the reason we had it was our friend David. He had bought it for his dad, who's this... uh, really amazing abstruse poet named Jack Hirschman who's still around and then David lent it to my brother because he said there's some stuff on here I think you might like because you like that instrumental Frank Zappa stuff my brother (laughs) being really into Zappa and Beefheart so there we were with this record and we put it on Bill's stereo and the first piece is an edited version of Africa and uh, it was like this door to a whole other dimension opened up sound of John Coltrane's tenor saxophone and the arrangements by Eric Dolphy the drone because I was really into Indian music uh, since I was 10 and the drone factor I just didn't know this was happening this kind of music this kind of music that was still called jazz it was still somehow related to jazz but that began a whole path of discovery and search based on this man's music that I had never heard of and I just started tracing back. You know, who is this man? I was crushed to find out he had already passed away. And uh, this led me and my brother to Miles Davis and to uh, Eric Dolphy, and then thus, in one direction, to Weather Report and Herbie Hancock, and you know, Miles Electric Music. In another direction, to uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago and Anthony Braxton and Leo Smith, and and our entire life changed from this one song. It just sounded so incredibly mysterious and compelling, and it, I, didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. That was maybe part of the uh, power of the impact of it. Uh, is it didn't sound like anything I'd heard before, but it sounded like something I wanted to know everything about.
3: And this was your first introduction to Coltrane, like... Completely. At all ever I didn't hearing... know his
2: name before? Oh that.
3: wow! And so, but I, I'm not—I'm not like a big Coltrane. Like I don't know a lot about John Coltrane actually. But it, is it his later stuff? Right? Like it's not because his earlier stuff was more melodic-ish.
2: Yeah, it was. It's pretty melodic, but it's 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 also kind of thematically minimal. It's really much more about this sound of this minor drone and these. Uh, instruments that Eric Dolphy arranged in this way that's, I guess, a little bit programmatic because it's called Africa, and a lot of the instruments sound kind of like wild animals or something, and I don't know. It's, but it's... Also, the sound of the recording mm-hmm. has a lot to do with it as well, and I think about Elvin Jones' drum sound on it and uh, Art Davis and, Bill, and, and, and Jimmy Garrison's on it and, God, all these people... I don't know. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't dissecting it. Uh, it was just washing over me. If I think of the melody that, that John Coltrane comes in with, and then halfway through that melody, there's this brass and woodwind line that goes... Da, 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 da. And that the sound of that melody, and it's like behind that, it just—it's the most amazing sound. It's just an incredible sound. And this led me then to discover Gil Evans and the magic of his arranging. Uh, it was a big, big life change.
3: Do you think that like you've been? Kind Of searching for those sounds, like to be able to create those sounds or like get somehow like recreate no. that mystery sometimes.
2: No, my brother and I were wide open to just sound in general, mm-hmm. and so it whether it was jazz or electronic music or rock or raga or kodo music or whatever, we just liked sound, and that was you have to imagine we had entered puberty in the late 60s, um, an incredibly magical time for sound in general, whether it was in pop music or whether it was the innovations of Musique concrète that led to electronic music. You know, rock and roll became more wide ranging. Certainly, Sgt. Pepper's was a huge influence. Uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn by Pink Floyd, The Mothers of Invention. Uh, At this point, you're imagining that anything's possible sonically and in terms of form. So we weren't looking for like some kind of authenticity like I only like folk blues or I only like uh, you know folk music or I only like classical music it was all about the magic of sound and so this just fit right in without me understanding how or why
3: and it was a totally different genre that you didn't really have much experience with like none yeah my dad listened
2: to ella fitzgerald and lena horn and swing era music and uh you know my association with horn music other than trying to play trumpet in elementary school was really 40s music, and, nice. and hearing clarinet and trombone and trumpet in, in swing music. I had no historical point of view for to address even Coltrane's sound, because he changed the sound of the tenor saxophone along with a handful of other people like John Gilmore, and uh, you know, it was considered uh, nasal. Unexpressive. He didn't have much vibrato. He was had a very ascetic sound, but it didn't sound dry or ascetic to me. It just sounded amazing. I didn't have a point of reference to say like, oh, gee, that doesn't sound like Sonny Rollins or Coleman Hawkins or or uh, Paul Gonzalez. It doesn't have that breathy, you know, exclamatory. An extremely dynamic sort of uh, sound is—it it is kind of monodynamic in a way. Uh, I don't know. So I have no—not a whole lot of objectivity about John Coltrane because I became obsessed with Coltrane after this. And then also when I heard *A Love Supreme*, this kind of fit in with my uh, investigations into uh, you know Eastern. Religion and spirituality and that sort of thing which was also all the rage at this point point.
3: and that, I, I wondered earlier when you talked about the drone like that was the first thing you mentioned about hearing Africa and that was something like you could go back and touch from a music that you already
2: from Indian that, that classical from music from Indian
3: classical music that and, you were already into
2: and, Do you, and rock bands had jammed out you know what yeah. I mean they didn't play a lot of chord changes you know and I was I still love the drone I'm not very good at chord changes there's, there's a little yeah. too much information for me <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, I, and I guess also what strikes me is like how nice to kind of have this experience with someone else. Like you, it sounds like it oh, wasn't yeah. just an experience that where your mind was opened up, like you, you and your brother heard it at yeah. the same time. And like that door opened at the same time Yeah, for both did. of you and you got to walk through it, which is a real special
2: yeah. experience. It's interesting being a twin. Mm. But then again, that's my life. So I don't know what it's like to not be a twin. I don't remember any of my past lives or anything.
3: <laughs>
2: it's, if I look at it historically now, it, it was you know, me and my brother entering through what a lot of people thought wasn't even jazz. So whether it was jazz or not didn't really matter. To us, but it certainly mattered to a lot of people we didn't understand. So it was called anti-jazz.
3: Anti-jazz, a term I've never heard yeah. actually. But you entered through anti-jazz, but it took you back to like everything. Yeah, before I mean, it, and it then related to everything
2: forward. I knew. And then forward, once we discovered Miles Davis, who by this time was uh, playing electric music, which we related to completely. And we heard Live Evil and Bitches Brew and In a Silent Way, and then that led us to Weather Report and. Herbie Hancock, Septet, and, and music that I still listen to all the time and that still influences me. Uh, that was also not anti-jazz, but it wasn't called jazz because it was being played on electric instruments. And it also didn't swing, didn't have swing. Most of these people were repudiating swing. You know, They were intentionally not playing swing time because they were saying this is old hat. But all of this was not... Part of my awareness. My awareness was just that it was the coolest sounding music I could hear at that time.
3: You had no dog in the jazz fight and that, like, whatever jazz (laughs) wars were going on, you know what I mean? Like, you just, it was just sound.
2: And around the same time, I got interested in what we now call progressive rock through our friend Lee, who we started playing music with in high school, and he was completely into progressive rock and uh, so called. So I started listening to all that too, and so all became about just about sound and form and and uh, expression that was wide-ranging and not compartmentalized into a three-and-a-half-minute song or uh, all these things that I decided were just not for me. You
3: know? and it, so do you kind of like go back and forth? Is there like a tension in your life between – because you do play some three-and-a-half-minute songs. That's an
2: interesting question, only because it was a huge tension in my life in the 80s uh, and not because of the three-and-a-half-minute song, but because of electric versus acoustic, jazz versus rock. There was a point at which I thought I had to play completely straight-ahead jazz in order to even get close to the music and uh, and study with some jazz giant and learn every song that was ever written from 1935 to 1955 or something. Um, but I'm not disciplined, number one, but also I don't feel I was passionate enough about it to to want to do that. My whole idea, fatuous as it might have been, was to do my own thing, you know, and uh, all the way until late 80s is when I finally just started my own trio and said, I'm just going to do whatever I want and I'm going to write music and I'm going to play anything that I think is something to play and not worry about it anymore. And it actually worked out pretty well. Life went in these very unexpected directions when I started playing with Mike Wadd in the in the mid 90s, and I started uh, playing later with the Geraldine Fibbers and and getting back into playing what we call rock music or punk rock related. I like to play with people I admire and whose music makes me feel something, and that just led me in another direction completely. But I don't even think about whether I'm switching gears or not at this point in my life because I just do all these things.
3: Is it still pretty much just about sounds? Yeah, like, is it's it... just
2: about sound. And it, and I like good songwriting and all that, but I'm not a songwriter in that way. Uh, so I admire somebody who is. Um, and I like trying to make somebody's dreams come true sonically. So... Uh, and then, and then with Wilco, it's strange because I ended up addressing this kind of, you know, more like 13-year-old me, you know, de- using all these sounds from all these records I was listening to when I was 13, you know, like, oh, like loving, yeah. loving the Buffalo Springfield and the
0: birds. I try to go and where the diamond crescent's glowing and run across the valley beneath the sacred mountain.
2: My reaction to music is first emotional if I like it, and I'm not so into process or novelty or, uh, I guess, um, any kind of dry
3: like systems. dissection of it. Or
2: yeah, I mean, I'm, I can learn from that and be fascinated by it. But but I'm kind of like a, a, a sentimental guy, so so I like music that feels like something and sometimes that means it's terrifying and that's good I like that uh I'm fascinated by how certain recordings have just completely blown my mind over and over again and then uh I can listen to for example a classical piece like there's a recording of the Duraflé Requiem and I can't remember who performs it right now but there's something about this recording because I went and listened to other versions of it to see if it was the notes, mm-hmm. or if it was the combination of the notes, the performance, and the recorded sound, and it has to be the notes, the performance, and the recorded sound, because literally the first three minutes of the first movement of the Durflay Requiem by on this particular recording reduces me to to jelly, just it... a puddle, and and no other version does. They, somebody takes it too fast. I get irritated. Mm-hmm. So you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So I... it is something about sound, but but uh, I like to have that reaction to to things. I don't need it, but I love it when it happens.
1: And below me, you can hear the song Odd End by Nels Klein and Julian Lodge. And it's cool to think that hearing the song he just spoke about, Africa, may have actually started him on the path to creating the song we're listening to right now. Cool, right? Plus that idea, the idea of people being into sound, like not genre, not lyric, not meaning, just sound. It's heavy because, I mean, that's what music is, it's sound. It's sound waves moving through air at certain frequencies and yet we are constructed to respond to it in such deep, deep ways that we often can't express in words what it does to us. Heavy. Next up, Julian Lodge. I mean, I guess you would call him a prodigy. He got deep into music, deep into guitar, like way deep into it at a much younger age than most people do. And he's played with a ton of people, Bella Fleck and Jim Hall, and of course, Nels Klein. And he talked about an experience That was maybe not as sweeping and earth-shattering as what Nels experienced, but which was still quite powerful. And just a note, Nels Klein will re-enter the conversation, so don't be taken aback. We were all sitting around talking, and he entered the conversation, and it seemed natural, and I promise it's good. So here he is, Julian Lodge. It's so funny
0: uh, listening to you talk about it it's so it's so fascinating because i i i I am having such trouble remembering anything so definitive and i think I think it speaks to the fact that the way I was kind of um processing and accumulating music as a little boy was very it was kind of like um like an Easter egg hunt more than it was like um Noting these things that really blew me away. I was just like, what needs to be done? Like, I should, let me ask these people what I should listen to. I should listen to Miles, I should listen to Monk, I should listen to this. And then I go, okay, I think I've heard it all, and I'll listen to it over and over again. And what's next? You know, and it's not that I didn't feel anything. I just kind of, um, I almost cataloged more than I remember putting on a CD and being swept away by it.
3: Well, you were really young when you started suppose, getting into I music. I mean, you were pretty... I was about five,
0: and yeah, I was, but I, yeah, I, I was young, and, uh, but it's so funny, because it's. I'm even surprised that it's not, you know, there's one record, there's only one record that I can think of, which is Jim Hall and Bill Evans' Undercurrent. Mm-hmm. you know, just kind of life-changing in the sense that when I heard it, I felt like, uh, you know, I I could hear this really crystal clear relationship between these people. That was very, you know, seductive. The, the musical part, I, I didn't know, you know. it's a very It's a short record, they do these beautiful songs, I later came to learn about them more and more, but I just liked how it seemed so much like real life, but without words. That's all I really remember.
3: like for you it was about two people yeah. actually having an, an authentic interaction
0: totally i remember you just you hear when bill evans has these, kind of weaves these amazing solos out of thin air seemingly and and rather than jim getting excitable he just he takes this other path of of you know supporting him and and going to a different register and um and then jim will do these things where right where you think god this is where the guitar is going to climax or do something crazy he starts playing only off beats and just unsettles the whole it's like it's hilarious (laughs) it's always seemed like satire to me you know
3: like two guys having fun together yeah
0: two guys having fun but also just kind of I don't know just kind of poking around in the dark a little bit too I just thought it was very it was just very it seemed very clear what was going on so I thought well that's that's cool. I like clarity, you know?
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then from there, I remember I, I learned I, I, there's this rhythm guitar part that Jim Hall does on My Funny Valentine, and specifically on the alternate take. And I learned. I tried to learn it, and then I got my teacher Randy Vincent, who showed me the record. He got possession possession of a-, a Japanese transcription book of that record. Oh. It's all in Japanese, but it- and it had. I remember he, he called me and said, "Oh, they've got the they've got the rhythm guitar part already. Now you can come over and learn it." And I went over to learn it. I remember, and they had understandably transcribed the not the alternate take at all <laughs> so what I had to figure out was okay I'm gonna learn what the original you know release take was and then I'm gonna figure out what was different about the alternate take but it's so fun I, and I wasn't I sounds so technical when I talk about it but it didn't feel that scientific I just felt like well this is my job I just got to go collect a bunch of stuff and not much has changed, and, but as a consequence, I, I've kind of blacked out. I don't remember things that I mean, stood out that much.
3: Well, it strikes me though. I mean, first of all, do you remember how old you were when you heard the that record? That record, like
0: I would have been probably nine years old.
3: Nine years yeah, old, no. and so and you'd been playing been music, playing. and you'd been p- exposed to a lot of like pretty heavy music. yeah. At yeah. a pretty young age. Yeah, sure. Um, but but the different the the different that thing that you heard in there was like an. An interaction with An someone interaction.
0: else. Interaction, yeah. And 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 uh and maybe that's that's a take on what Nels is talking about with regard to the spiritual path or the humanity of music. You know, this sense of uh it being beyond entertaining, but having a um a narrative or a purpose or, you know, music can can come across as like a prayer, you know, that stuff. Or it's people calling out or people who otherwise aren't really heard in mm-hmm. their the context of their life, but in the setting of their band they're you know, they've got the stage, you know, and everything they play is responded to and picked up. And I mean, um, so that was the first time that aspect stood out. I also was kind of, um, I I never transcribed anything, which is a a pretty, um, uh, robust tradition in jazz is that you transcribe solos and that's how you get vocabulary, but Is that a thing really? Oh my God. That's most of jazz education. Like
3: you actually sit down and like write out the...
0: Every note, solos? every note and every rhythm and everything and you learn and you they say that's how you get vocabulary I, I didn't ever do that um, and I think part of it was laziness and part of it was that I just didn't just a kind of you know a certain apathy where it's like I don't care what they're actually doing I just like how I feel when I hear it so I did a lot of like mock trials <laughs> where I'd put on like Wes Montgomery he'd be souling over a blues or something that I knew you know I'd say okay when I listen to that I feel this way and then I'd say I'm gonna take a solo now and try to elicit the same emotion, and you know, no surprise, I'd play and I'd feel nothing. I just feel like frustrated that I sounded kind of, you know, like an amateur. So, okay, put it on again. I'd listen <laughs> again and say, "Well, yeah, yeah, I feel that thing in my stomach, and that's cool." And so then I'd do it again. I'd feel nothing. And I, but I did this for years until I could. I I was always interested. In how do you elicit that? To you know, uh, appropriately, that undercurrent, that emotional undercurrent. Um, and I laid and and that was so fun. And eventually, you know, I would start to say, oh, whoa, I was able to elicit a similar rise. It had nothing to do with that player. I wouldn't even say it's in the same league, but it's, I'm starting to see how this machine could work.
3: I mean, and I think that's so much of what it is. It's like you hear a piece of music and it makes you feel a certain way. And then you spend your life trying to get, trying to make something that maybe elicits that same feeling from Mm -hmm. other people not exactly like rewriting someone's song but like how does how does someone feel how can i make someone feel the way that i felt and i love the bill evans jim hall idea of like Mm -hmm. it being about you were really attracted to the interaction but also like the connection because at its core that's what a really good band or right, or anything right. is all about is really about how the how, they, how the players connect and i'm looking at you and Nels sitting next to each other and thinking that like is that kind of what you guys go for because i felt it when i watched see, you yeah, yeah. like i i think we all felt like that this particular project is a lot about interaction mm-hmm. and connection
2: yeah i mean but we're not trying
0: yeah exactly it's it's you-
2: You just just, are? It was just immediate when we started playing. Really? Yeah. That's why we're doing this. I had already done a bunch of guitar duos, nothing like this, of course, Mm. uh, just sonically and and compositionally, whatever, nothing like this, but I was reluctant to start another guitar duo thinking that people would think, oh, I'm stuck, or maybe I'm stuck, maybe, Mm. and I was going to add another instrument because I was looking to do a chamber jazz kind of thing mm-hmm. when I met Julian. Not thinking it would be another guitar, but then we started playing, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe this is should be an, an, an ingredient in this idea I'm having. And then, no, there's no way to let anybody else in on this. <laughs> <laughs> Man who I now friendly with named Brian Camelio, who was a good friend of Jim Hall's and Julian's and all these people. And I had written an article for Jazz Times. They asked me to write about ten tracks by any artist I chose, and I chose Jim. Which is ironic because so did Julian, but he was too late. He had to write something else he was asked <laughs> I to got write too. Kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Brian had read it and he said, Oh, look, Jim lives a block from you, and which I knew. And he, we have these lunches at the end of your street, at, at this restaurant, at the end of your street, when we get Jim out of the apartment, and we, you really have to come and meet Jim and hang out with him and his friends. And so that's how I met Julian, was at one of these lunches. And so we started talking, the California boys, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I said, hey, come down to the house and check out this guitar I have or something. And then we started playing, just improvising, and that was it, immediate. Ooh. That's when I asked Julian. I said, "Would you want to pursue this kind of playing?" Because it was completely free playing that we were doing, and he said, "Yeah." So that's how this started. But but that was an, an immediate connection in, in terms of playing, without trying to make anything happen other than maybe some good music. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and and that kind of pre-verbal connection that mm, totally. sometimes happens with music, which is like yeah, which is that it's which is cool. magic. It's, it's actual cool. magic. It
2: is. Yeah. It is. And I, and I guess, like, for me being a twin, an identical twin, mm-hmm. I was kind of maybe uh, too used to this at an early time in my life. My brother was always really good, and I was always really crappy. But I could always <laughs> sound better if I played with him. And then we read each other's minds, basically, when we were improvising. And it got to be so automatic that I had to get away from it, actually. And I distanced myself and tried other things, playing with people who... But basically didn't have their antennae fully extended, and uh, it was really frustrating. But now I'm lucky. Now I, in my life I have a few individuals that I can play with who really have their antennae extended, and who are, we have this thing. But it is unusual. I think that Julian's like on some other crazy planet. It's
0: crazy.
3: Well, it's fun. I'm glad you guys met, and thank you guys for taking yeah. the time to do this. I of really appreciate it. our so pleasure. Much. Thanks for having us. That was awesome. Thanks.
1: The Bond by Nels Klein and Julian Lodge. And I encourage you to go to KUTX.org and find their Studio 1A performance because when you hear that performance, you can hear their connection, their bond, as it were. It's like they're communicating using some kind of mental mind meld. And that's what Julian was looking for, connection and feeling. And when you see the two of them, when you hear the two of them interact... It's nice to know that sometimes in life, you get exactly what you want. And that's it. We've come to the end of another episode of This Song. This song is a production of KUTX 98.9. It was produced and edited by myself, Elizabeth McQueen, John Parsons, and David Sanger. And welcome to the This Song team, John. He really did the lion's share of the editing on the Nels Klein and Julian Lodge Interviews. You can hear John Saturdays from 6 to 10 a.m. on KUTX. The interviews were recorded by Cliff Hargrove. Thanks to Peter Babb for everything he does for KUTX. He books over 300 acts in Studio 1A a year and out at the festivals, and like that's a lot of booking. Our theme song is Mahoot by Austin's own hard proof Afrobeat, who will be at Emo's in Austin with Thievery Corporation for New Year's Eve. You can email us at this song at kutx.org or tweet us at this song K-U-T-X. You can subscribe to this song along with other K U T X podcasts like liner notes, Song of the Day, and Austin Music Minute on iTunes, or follow us on Stitcher and Hey. We know you're busy, but if you have a moment, we'd love a rating or a review. For any of the podcasts, really. Right on. Well, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you later.